This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. This episode features two interviews. First, Carl Flersch discusses the underlying structures which shape distributed applications. Carl's ability to explain the deeper mechanics of software running in the Ethereum environment is unique, and discussions with him are always fun, insightful, and visionary. Then we have Manfred Kare, the creator of BitSquare. For the uninitiated, BitSquare is a decentralized fiat-to-crypto exchange. While it's completely self-contained and doesn't use Ethereum in any way, it's a standalone dApp and that's pretty cool. On top of that, we have a comprehensive decentralized version of local Bitcoins now, which is extremely newsworthy. BitSquare is especially interesting because by looking at the challenges Manfred faced throughout its development, we can gain an understanding of the need for a unified dApp platform. So the reason I wanted to uh, to produce this episode with you, Carl, is that we were having at uh, at work a really interesting discussion about the structure of distributed applications and their dependencies on the Ethereum network and how it's actually going to how it's actually going to emerge and, and what's actually what structures are actually being built up. We were using the word uh, the phrase Web 3.0 and uh, and the Internet of Autonomous Agents. And I figured uh, you might be able to introduce the concept better than myself. Yeah, well, Web3 uh, has a, it's a very loaded term. Um, and the best way to kind of understand where Web3 fits is kind of looking at the bigger picture and what Web1 and Web2 are in the first place. So uh, starting out where Web1, uh, it was, you know, back in the 90s, the internet, I mean, the internet had roots before then, but we started to be able to create networks of computers. And these networks of computers allowed, it, it removed distance between human beings, um, but it was still very rudimentary. It took a, a while for the actual ecosystem to, to mature, to essentially lower the barrier of entry between human beings interacting. So it started out being very difficult. You had to go on your clunky computer, but it eventually... Uh, the barriers of entry kind of lowered. And as the advent of things like the smartphone and things like Facebook and things like uh, all these social services that we use and take for granted, um, that's, that's where kind of Web 2 came in. So Web 1, just the, comp- the computers talking, Web 2 was really this social internet where we had human beings talking and interacting on an unprecedented scale. And why that's like really, it's really cool how the, the interactions, this mass communication has ripples, ripple effects and in, in our uh, like physical life. So, so when there's a, a, some kind of crazy thing that happens in one part of the world, you'll see ripple effects in Twitter and Facebook and all this activity. And you can actually like look at that on a broader scale. And so that really connected human beings on a, in a, in a very intimate sense and an intimate setting that is, you know, didn't exist before. And then Web3 is where we get to what I like to call the Internet of Autonomous Agents. So just like there were barrier of, barriers of entry between human beings in, uh, from Web1 to Web2, there were now this, there is, there is currently a data silos, basically. So islands of data and islands of you know applications that all speak the same language inside their island but then when they want to communicate with other applications there's this translation that has to occur and those are like you can imagine bridges on the island and what ethereum is is actually kind of pioneering is it takes these applications and puts them on a single platform and so just like we saw in the other cases where because the uh, barriers of entry between humans interacting were taken down, we saw these very interesting kind of ripple effects and bigger pictures, bigger scale 
effects and you know emergence from the that that incredible complexity the, there can be an analogy that is drawn to the the breaking down of these data silos these islands of application data and that and that once it's on the you know ethereum platform can you elaborate on the mechanisms that lead to that breaking down and the uh, and the structures that exist in the, within ethereum that replace it First, I think the, the important thing is to be able to conceptualize what Ethereum is. And so Ethereum, in its essence, is a single computer. Um, it is a, you know, a computer that has programs loaded onto it, kind of smart contracts is what we like to call them. But it's this one computer that everyone shares. And because it's on the same computer, what that allows is that allows for the applications to have native level translation. So they're all speaking the same language. And that, that language is technically, uh, you know, instruction operations on the EVM. But we write, you know, Solidity code, for example, to, to interact. But these smart contracts are really uh, kind of, they have a native connection between one another. Higher, in a, in a more uh, direct sense than maybe the HTTP protocol, which then has other you know, sub uh, categories. Anyway, this is this uh, this is the concept of disintermediation, right? I mean, we, we when we talk about it, we normally talk about disintermediation of economic flows, but really, in uh, within Ethereum, there's this disintermediation of the interaction of these autonomous software agents. Exactly, exactly. That's where you get the um, the effect of. Uh, you know, you you load up a computer program, and that computer program program lives on itself by itself on the network, and only because you you put in value, you know, you had to pay for this program to live on the network. Now it lives on the network, and the thing is that that program can now, because it's on this network, it has access to the network in a in a way that the the internet by itself doesn't really have. And that's where this kind of other layer comes in, where it's Web3, you know. So, but there is a catch here because a, uh, a, contra- a contract has to be activated. You know, we call it or- autonomous, but it can't, something has to trigger its, uh, its action, right? It needs an impulse. Absolutely. And that's, this is actually where it gets really like cool, because if you think about it, you can think about it as like a stimuli, Right. If you are living, and I, I, let's just take the analogy of a human being kind of in a vacuum. The human being in a vacuum is not going to be feeling anything. There's not going to be anything interesting going on. But then once you like touch the human, right, or, or the human can see something, something goes on and there's this awakening of potential uh, change, right? And so you can take that analogy and kind of look at Ethereum in the same way, in that it needs a stimuli to get the, you know, the ball rolling. But once the ball is rolling, now you can imagine a long chain of implications and interactions that, get, that occur because of that uh, stimuli. So exactly what you're talking about is the stimuli. You need a stimuli. But the stimuli will then create this mass effect. Potentially, right. And that's the... Um, and, and that is where the... Uh this kind of chaotic and complex behavior can can emerge right i mean and that's that's like the that's the magic of the whole thing is the uh the interconnection and interdependence of all these of all these small components that like once stimulated can set off this massive ripple effect just like just like the human nervous system as you, as you described it exactly exactly and you the thing is that you need that you need a, a direct connection for that for that interaction level of complexity to occur, and that's that's where that Ethereum is so vital. So let's. Uh, so I'm sure we'll come back to that, but let's talk about the difference between an app stack and the DAP stack. I showed this to Taylor Goering, uh, you know, the notes we'd taken, and he pointed out that this is just how you know the DAP stack is just. It's just the same way you'd build any uh, any software component, only it's a uh, it's a new suite of um, it's a new suite of tools and a new platform. Yeah, I mean the it's it's exactly it's building on the exact same technology that we use for any kind of any kind of software. 
Um, the, the only interesting thing is that instead of living on one single computer or living in one single entity, it's now actually a, an entity that is distributed across a network that, you know, once the network combines, kind of forms the full uh, capacity of that entity. And so it's using the same tools, but it's, it has this very different effect. So to, to go into more detail, the, we can start with the app stack. The application stack that we have right now, it starts with the, the network and hardware layer. Uh, I'm going to simplify things. But then next you have kind of your virtual machines, so your EVM, your, your uh, V8. Then uh, above that, you have the kind of JavaScript or Java layer where you're actually being able to kind of write code that gets interpreted to machine code. And then above that, you have your libraries of groups, kind of basically building blocks of code that you can use to really create your applications. And then you have your kind of actual user-facing applications. And when I'm talking about the app stack, I'm kind of bundling in not only user-facing front ends, but I'm also bundling in the, you know, even uh, distributed systems that, you know, Hadoop or whatever other um, distributed system you'd like to call it, because it, it kind of acts as one entity. It's, it's a single, it speaks its own language. It's living on its own island. And so that, that's, there's, there's huge complexity there, and that's not something that's going to go away. That's incredibly useful. But we now have this kind of DAP stack, which is using, you'll, you'll see it's very similar. So it, basically, the, it starts out the same way, where you have the network, the hardware, then you have your VM, which uh, will, you know, EVM, for instance, for Ethereum, and Solidity as your programming language. And then uh, above that, you now have the, the weird thing is that now because you're not, you don't have this, these islands of systems, you're now working with one system, really. You're working with the Ethereum network, which is one computer, kind of like what I was saying before. The, the libraries are actually within a shared runtime. So when you upload a contract to the, to the network, you're going to be able to access that contract very without any, there's no kind of barrier, there's no logical barrier. You don't have to download it from NPM. You don't have to, you know, fit it into your local application. It actually already lives on the network. So you can actually access that library directly. So that's a, a kind of one of those, that's where it starts kind of breaking off into its own what is this area? And the next place is the actual DAP, um, which is a, I would say, a system of smart contracts, some of them being libraries, that perform a, uh, a series of useful actions and hold some kind of state uh, that, that you want to keep track of. For instance, you can see you know, the DAOs. Every, every two minutes, there's a new DAO. Um, and that's because that's a, I mean, it's a very useful construct and that has a few things in it. It has a token system that has a, uh, you know, I could go on governance system, uh, authentication system. And those are kind of libraries living at the library level. But the, so the, the fundamental difference though, is that now we have, we have these applications, which are their own standalone entities. And we have these dApps, which are kind of strange because they are one entity living on one network, assuming we're talking about one network. And that shared uh, runtime, that shared environment, is where you can start to see really interesting things. Just like there was no barrier of entry between using a DAP and a, and a library, you know, the interaction there, there's no barrier of entry between DAPs themselves. And so we can maybe talk about, at some point, chaining these, these DAPs. Um, and the, the, the power that comes from the complexity that that, that uh, creates. When you say barrier to entry, though, really you mean the, uh, there's no barrier to interaction. Yeah, barrier of interaction. That's a, better, that's a better term. When we think DAP, though, right, today, it seems like the, the word DAP is the term DAP or distributed application is usually used to describe any application that uses the, uh, a, a distributed runtime, right? Or in the case of um, in the case of Ethereum, the uh, the Ethereum platform, like or uh, or and I love that um, BitSquare's emerged, right? Because BitSquare, that's totally on its own. That's the whole stack operating, totally built independent of anything else. 
Like that's a standalone dap. But you can you can employ those uh, those daps, like you said, stringing daps together to create like it's really the, they're a new type of tool. Not and and calling them a dap, you know, I, I just feel like there's there's a need for better demarcation in our terminology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the term term dap is really kind of confusing in its in its essence because you're saying a you know a decentralized or distributed application, right? What exactly? Does that entail the, the, the idea of where the power comes from uh, in, a, in Ethereum is, is kind of that it's an ecosystem of these quote-unquote dApps. And it's, it's almost like they're centralized because it's weird because you have one central network, right? You have a central network, but that network itself is decentralized. So technically, the apps that are running on the network are decentralized, but in a way you're interacting with it in a central way. It's, so it's a weird contradiction because it's not all about the decentralization. The, the power of Bitcoin, the power of Ethereum, the power of BitShares, all of these uh, platforms is the power that a network that is decentralized can become unified in one vision. Like you can have a trusted network. Let's talk about the actual use cases of... Um of distributed applications and how those, uh, those unique qualities allow them to perform tasks that previously couldn't be performed by centralized applications. Yeah, so, so there, there's the, the distributed application and the kind of centralized uh, you know, service that we see today. So I guess we'll start with, start with the use case, it makes sense. One example would be uh, insurance for transactions. And the reason why I bring this up is actually because this is a problem within the Bitcoin network and within a lot of, I mean, including the Ethereum network right now, but eventually this could be solved, which is why it's an interesting kind of use case. Um, the thing is that when you send a transaction on Bitcoin, and I actually lost a little bit of Ether yesterday because I put in an address wrong, you're not going to get that back, right? It's gone and good luck, right? If you send it to the wrong person, there's no way to get it back. Um, and we don't have we in 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 a uh, in our kind of usual currency, so dollars, for instance. We have established systems to prevent this, uh, like a irreversible transaction, and that is, you know, you have insurance companies, you have banks, you have all these layers of kind of institution that will save you if you made a, made a stupid mistake, because we all make stupid mistakes. So. The, the interesting thing is that now if you use dApps, right, what you can do is you can actually layer your transaction through other dApps. So one simple dApp would be an insurance um, dApp, kind of performing the task of eBay or PayPal um, where they mediate transactions. So you send it to the insurance dApp, and then once the, peop- once the parties say that, yes, it went through, it, the transaction is complete, and the parties get their, their whatever their funds. Or you can dispute that transaction and a third-party moderator will come in. And that can be in the form of a company, that can be in the form of a, another decentralized organization, whatever you want. So there is that level. But the thing that's cool about this is actually that the code to make that happen is really tiny. So it's really easy to make a simple moderator application or DEP. And what's cool about that is that you have, what, how many layers of, of interaction? If, if PayPal doesn't settle your uh, you know, dispute, then you can talk to you know, X, Y, or Z. You can kind of go over their head. But how, how, how many layers are there in that system? And the, the, the truth of the matter is there are not that many layers because it gets really complicated. Each layer takes a lot of time and manual labor to, to maintain. In a DAP, because there's so little code, you can actually create more layers than were possible from, a, from a, the uh, conventional perspective. You would never be able to create 100 layers of insurance, for instance, which is like, what is even 100 layers of insurance? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the kind of concept that almost doesn't even like, mean anything because we've never seen it. We've never seen your transaction and your dispute of that transaction affecting another kind of transaction or some kind of other th- state 
and that state affecting another state. And just like we went back, kind of going back to the analogy of a nervous system where you, you send a shock in one part of the body and you can see the, the nerves reacting in all other parts of the body. And there's this huge chain and tree, just like a, you know, a lightning shock of, of interactions. And so that, that capability is actually possible. And that's where, the, that's where you start going from you're recreating what already exists. And right now we're doing a worse job than the current financial system or everyone would be on Bitcoin or Ethereum to outstripping and completely leaving behind the kind of current way that we interact. To put this into a soundbite, what is it about the distributed runtime environment that enables these interactions that weren't possible in, the, uh, in a centralized system? Because you trust the network, you can create your own currencies. And that empowerment will allow the network effects of all the developers in the world, just like you know, the internet and web applications have exploded in complexity, we'll see an explosion of complexity in decentralized applications, trust applications that are dealing with transactions. Because the blockchain tracks the state of the network, uh, we can kind of imagine that there is a, a, certain, a, a certain space of which every possible state of the network might occupy. I mean, however, however infinite that the number of possibilities there might be. As these, uh, as these libraries grow, the number of possible states of the network increase, but as their dependencies grow, the actual... Uh, state space that is occupied also grows. Yeah, and the, like the interactions, when one thing changes, it causes ripple effects, you know, butterfly effects from, you know, all across the system, that kind of thing. So that's your kind of description of, uh, of fuzzy computation. But I, I still, yeah, can, can, you, can you explain fuzzy computation again? Because that's something that, that's a, like a, a really interesting term. Yeah, so fuzzy computation, uh, when, when we write smart contracts today uh, and we're trying to divvy up portions of uh, some kind of song or crowdfunding or whatever it is, um, there's this, we need, a, we need a, a, a contract written in English to go along with that. And that contract in English is useful because it has, it is written out in words in English, right? It's not written in code. And the thing is that code has very, uh, its, its, its meaning is single. You know, you know that if you write, uh, you know, X plus one or X minus one, that that is going to do exactly what it says. But when you write, you know, guns are allowed for every citizen, that is going to, what is a, the, the concept of a gun and the concept of a citizen and the concept of allowed, all of these things are determined by the, the global consciousness of what, English means because English itself is changing. So writing a contract allows for this, this dependency. It has this implicit dependency on the interpretation by humans, which changes over time. So the, inter the, the human beings who read the contract are going to interpret it differently depending on what age or what, you know, what year it is. Uh, there's a spectrum on one hand, it's smart contracts that are like sequences of execution. So execution steps, right? Uh, one example could be like walk forward, walk to the left, walk to the right, walk forward again, or, you know, something like that. That, that is 100% set in stone kind of what you, the, the execution steps are, that record. Um, and then on the other hand, you have language or the definitions of things. So like, what is the actual definition of walk? Uh, or I don't, or the definition of how, like how far forward or, you know, what is the speed of your walking? You know, there's a lot of these dependencies. And so what R3 is doing is they are using the, the, the side of the spectrum that is very exact, kind of the precise kind of scripts of what to do. You know, you have, you have two inputs and you give out a specific output. There's, but there's a whole spectrum there. And while it is really useful to use that code side of the spectrum, it's also going to be, it's also useful to, to use the other side of the spectrum. And there's a lot of space in between. Um, and, and the way that I see it is the, the space on the right is 
is defined by the fact that it is um, immutable in time. It is infinite. It is like a law of nature, right? You say E equals MC squared, like law of nature, right? And then on the other side, you have something that is wishy-washy, like the Constitution or like contracts. And what you can do is that the, the reason why it's wishy-washy is because it has those dependencies. And that gets back to this. Once you, once, when you create a system that has so many smart contracts on it and the smart contracts, the state space of the entire system increases as the smart contracts get added. But the really cool thing is when those smart contracts depend on each other, right? That creates chain reactions and very interesting kind of cross-pollination of application state. And the way that you can look at that is you can actually see the words in English as a each word representing a you know a meaning and that meaning is defined in time right now and if you look at that in terms of ethereum or smart contracts if you say you know you have a reputation and every day that goes by and you're you're working on your reputation and that reputation is constantly changing if you base your smart contracts ex- execution on that reputation now that's actually bound to time because your, your, your reputation is bound to time. So as, as we increasingly, increasingly uh, create dependencies on our uh, Ethereum smart contracts, we can now cover the entire spectrum where we can write laws of nature that are steadfast and that R3 is using, and we can write uh, like English word equivalents in code like we've been using for a long, long time since we could write. And so, so really what this is, that what enables this is that like uh, spoken language, which is dependent on the, in, the environment that it, uh, that it exists in, the environment that these smart contracts exist in is perpetually changing. And so their execution, depending on their dependence on that environment, their execution, uh, the result of their execution may also change. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's where you start to see that convergence in the two. That's where you can, let's, we don't have to speak English anymore. And this is like, this is quite crazy because this brings us to the point of like, what is code now, right? Like code has suddenly, it seems that with, um, that well, no one's been watching computer code, the language that people use to describe tasks to be executed by a computer has taken on a, uh, another role in, in that it can, now, it can now describe deeper and deeper ideas and, uh, and produce more and more interesting, uh, interesting things. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And you can actually see this today where we, you know, the, the financial crisis in 2008, we have these computers that are executing trades, transactions, transmitting value automatically, Right. Um, high frequency trading, that kind of stuff. And what that actually was doing is that it's creating this network of, you know, applications changing state. And this value is actually, you know, visceral and connects us to reality. You know, if you trade uh, $400 million and you give it to random people, then you hurt, you know, you will destroy some lives because your computer program went wrong. So you actually saw that where we, we were having, we were starting to mess around with this high interaction computer uh, transmission of value. And then 2008 happened where we had horrible uh, consequences from people who are basically misusing this power. And now kind of out, out, out of that, that uh, realization that we have a weird, broken, uh, non-accountable financial system, we're kind of building this crypto-secured economics and this crypto secured value system because really what is you know money it's a value store there's a catch here though right and that is that in 2008 there was an end of day right if when things started happening there was a point at which everyone where things stopped happening and everyone could try and strategize but in crypto land there's no end of day and with these high this high these high interdependencies and this massive interconnectedness that's like quite terrifying you know (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the crazy thing is that uh, as, as we progress with these technologies down the line, it's not only going to be right now, okay, there is no end of date, but maybe there's a 20-minute a period where it's going to kind of start crashing and people are going to see, oh my gosh, this train reaction is causing catastrophic effects. Right, so there might be a twenty-second reaction, and the people are like frantically trying to fix it or whatever it is. But as time goes on, and as transaction speeds increase, and as these systems get more complicated, the crashes and the booms are going to be like on a microsecond scale. It's it, it takes human beings completely out of the process of determining this or almost takes them out of the process of determining this, uh, you know, what their whole value system is based on. This makes you think about Elon Musk's open AI project, right? It's going on simultaneously. And so while we talk about these, um, this like massive network of, of value and, you know, the network of autonomous agents, people often, people talk about Web3 as like, it incorporates the internet of value, the internet of things, the internet of people and all these, all this stuff, all, all into one thing. But then when you get, um, when you add to that artificial intelligence, which seems to be on the horizon, it makes you wonder what role humans have in running the world at all. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's a, a, a rising um, idea that human beings will soon just be producing art. But then at the same time, like, why can't computers do art better than us? So we'll, we'll see exactly what happens. But, uh, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And the thing is that there's, a, there's a, actually a really weird feeling that, that you get when you upload something, upload a smart contract to the Ethereum network. Because you realize that there's a reasonable chance, because it's a blockchain, that that will live on for an extremely long period of time, you know, depending on the success of Ethereum and if blockchains don't get stomped out by the government, hopefully, that I, it doesn't seem like that happened. But there's this feeling that you're creating something that can never be turned off. And the thing that, that has always comforted me about computers is that they've always had this off switch. You know, you can run your AI, but some way you can kind of turn it off before it, it seems like it's going to cause a lot of damage, although this is not really true. When you, when you couple, when you basically give artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, these, these computer programs that are able to make smart choices, when you give them a network that they are the main, uh, that they kind of rule, right? This is the internet of autonomous agents. They rule this place. We're building this place that they are going to have dominion over. That gives them a whole new level of legitimacy that they did not have previously. Hey, so where can people find out more about your work and, uh, and what you're up to, Carl? Yeah, so they can go to carl.tech, K-A-R-L dot T-E-C-H. Um, that's, that's my website where I just post a bunch of blogs mostly related to Ethereum. I'm mostly technical fo technically focused. Um, they can also check out my Twitter, which is carl underscore dot D-O-T underscore tech T-E-C-H. Hey, thanks for joining me, Manfred. Would you please introduce yourself and explain your uh, your decentralized crypto to fiat exchange BitSquare? Yeah, thanks, Arthur, for having me on your show. And I'm really happy to be, especially on your show, because you have been the first uh, ever uh, who did a BitSquare interview two years ago. So you were a very early scout to discover it. <laughs> so thanks a lot. And I'm happy to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Manfred Kara. I'm the lead, de oh, so I'm the, yeah, the founder and the lead developer of BitSquare, a decentralized exchange, uh, exchange for exchange, uh, yeah, for uh, for purchasing or uh, selling uh, Bitcoin to national currency, to fiat currencies, or to other altcoins, to any kind of altcoins. Basically, we're very open to support uh, many altcoins, and the way how it's built. It's yeah, we take, we took care that of course security is the most important part first. So we are using uh, uh, three elements for securing the exchange. That's a two of three multisig, 
a security deposit and a decentralized arbitration system. And to make sure that it's really decentralized and censorship resistant, we applied uh, the decentralization not only on the infrastructure, like uh, we have a peer-to-peer, a custom peer-to-peer uh, network, which is operating over Tor hidden services. But no worry, the user don't need to install anything or set up anything. It's all integrated in BitSquare. Uh, but we, uh, it was always very important, and I planned this from the beginning, uh, to not be a startup or a, a company, but to uh, organize it as a decentralized autonomous organization. Because I think that fits the best uh, to this nature of a, of a real, uh, yeah, of a, of a decentralized uh, application. When you began developing BitSquared, it was it was long before there was a a general purpose distributed application development platform. So, what were the challenges that you faced building BitSquare without this uh, without this pre existing technology stack? Actually, I was. Uh, it started more or less the same time like Ethereum started. It was early 2014, and I was following Ethereum from the very beginning. I was a big fan of Vitalik, and I yeah, I was also pretty active in the community in these days. And I was I was uh, considering to use Ethereum as the main um, yeah, technology and currency, but of course it was too early. It was uh, Ethereum was just starting, and uh, I need to use something which was already uh, deployed. Yeah, the main, I think the main challenge is a peer-to-peer network, a really decentralized uh, peer-to-peer network where you can exchange data and where you can store data in the network. It's basically, I mean, now, luckily, there are a few projects in development and yeah, with Ethereum, with the Swarm and Whisper systems. But in this time, there, there was not uh, really much there. So I used a, a distributed hash table network. Uh, which I needed to uh, yeah to remove a year ago or in last summer and to change them to my custom peer-to-peer network. And the other challenges, of course, is that you you need to find a way how you set up all the yeah. I mean, uh, to create a DAO, I think the most challenging part is to mix the right the incentives to create the right uh, elements for making making it make it yeah that it attracts people that you're that you have security, that you're not starting to introduce single point of failures. And I think that's a, that's a, a learning process for the, whole, for the whole ecosystem at the end. We, are, we need to try out to make experiments and we, we can learn from others' failures. And after time, uh, I think it will develop what are the best uh, practice how to do it. I had a quick look uh, to yeah to swarm, but in this time, I think it was still under heavy development, so it was not ready to use. That would have been very interesting for me to build on top of that. And the other solution, like it's called interplanetary file system, <laughs> they they did not really uh, uh, focus on my use cases because uh, in BitSquare it's not important to uh, archive uh, the data forever and make it have version control or whatever. Yeah, I had other use cases, so it would have been. Um, yeah, it would have been a wrong decision. Also, like uh, to use BitTorrent. So I was thinking all this. Yeah, maybe I can ut- utilize BitTorrent, but it, it has has other uh, direction. So at the end, for me, it seems it's best that I build a special purpose network exactly for what I need. And also, I mean, I had very limited resources. Basically, I was working alone, so I could not build a general purpose platform which is designed for all kind of uh, applications because it would have exploded the effort and uh, yeah, I would never cut out something. I think what's, uh, developed, what's getting developed in the Ethereum space is super important and make it much easier in future for such applications. It was just uh, from the timing probably. I was probably too early or we are doing stuff all in parallel at the moment. So it, yeah, it didn't fit from the timing. Let's talk about the value proposition of the DAP and why you chose uh, in the first place to build BitSquare. Yes, my, my motivation behind BitSquare was that, uh, yeah, we have this decentralized uh, currency, Bitcoin, and all the other altcoins, but we didn't have any exchange possibility which followed the same principles and the same uh, philosophy so that you can exchange in a peer-to-peer way without the middleman in between, without anybody who is collecting and controlling uh, your data. Especially this privacy uh, part for me was uh, the most important. Because I think it's uh, very, very dangerous for the whole system when you get connected to your real life identity with your Bitcoin address, and then with chain analy- uh, with coin tracing and analysis of the blockchain, you can get a lot of information of your financial transactions. And it's not only about privacy; 
it's also about uh, uh, the quality of money because such a money where everything is completely public, nobody will use it at the end, especially not the big companies who don't want to expose their financial interactions to everybody, to their competitors. And so, so such a money would simply fail. It will not survive. And that the infrastructure around Bitcoin or the cryptocurrencies was not very strongly following the same principles. There are not too many projects which are doing uh, really uh, decentralized applications. Like, yeah, the exchanges, we basically don't have a, a decentralized fiat exchange. That was for me the motivation to start with the project. Uh, it's badly needed and it's a, a little bit of shame that it took so long because it was not so impossible. It was not easy for sure. But I think the main problem and the main hurdle was that there are no business models or the current business model, the traditional business models, does not work well with such uh, really decentralized uh, projects. And there, uh, that's the point where this decentralized autonomous organization concept uh, plays a very important role because I think th uh, that model fits very well to such kind of application. And uh, I think that's kind of like uh, the solution to bootstrap or projects in that direction. So really, the DAP and the DAO are two sides of the, of the same coin or, or, or two necessary components in creating new software and organizational ecosystem. Is that, is that your, your kind of view on that? Yeah, exactly. And I think Bitcoin itself is the best example. It's a form of DAO, like Vitalik said in his famous article in Bitcoin Magazine two years ago already. People are working for the projects and they, got, they invest in the tokens very early. And with the price increase of the tokens, they get uh, rewarded in a way. And it's completely free. There is no leader. There is no dicta dictator or CEO who decide what's going on. The community as a whole, it's evolving. It's like, like a swarm. It's swarm-like that uh, people are self-organizing, they're building the stuff, there is competition between best, the best ideas and the best ideas get replicated and get mixed. I think that's a very interesting and very healthy development that's much better and much more efficient and successful like a top-down hierarchical model what we are used from our, all our classical business models and the way how organizations are uh, working and exercised. Way back when, the reason that, uh, that BitSquare actually caught my eye uh, wasn't even that I understood the value of the decentralized exchange. So much as it was, I found the arbitration system really interesting. And, uh, and I, I've waited for, for years to see someone produce a comparable uh, arbitration system for, uh, for managing disputes in a decentralized fashion. So unfortunately, the, the decentralized arbitration system is still not in place. That's planned for the next milestone, hopefully in the next half year. We have implemented that, but it's quite a lot of work. So I postponed this a little bit. But, I, uh, want to, but we have a normal uh, arbitration system where basically I'm the only arbitrator at the moment, which is practical because uh, when there are problems, it's at the moment only software problems, software bugs or uh, usability problems. And so it's the easiest way that I get the direct feedback and can help directly. And also there is no risk for collusion that I would uh, collude with one user because I would create a huge damage for my project and I would shoot in my own knee. It would be completely pointless, of course. So there is zero risk that I'm it's a scammer, as arbitrator. And so it's the most practical solution for now. But of course, in, uh, it's uh, absolutely on the, on the table that we are uh, implementing the decentralized arbitration system. And maybe I give a little bit of uh, context how it is used. As in BitSquare, when you make a trade and any, anything goes wrong, like one, uh, yeah, the Bitcoin buyer is not doing the, the fiat transfer, for instance, then the Bitcoin seller can call the arbitrator after a certain time period. So each trade has a, a limited uh, how long it might take. Uh, usually one day or for bank transfers eight days because banks are still living in the 70s and need a few days for transferring money. And uh, then this, the other trader who thinks he got scammed or yeah, he did not uh, receive the money, uh, he can call the arbitrator. The arbitrator will get in touch with both. Also that's integrated all in BitSquare. It's an end-to-end encrypted chat method over the Tor network also. And you can chat and you can talk with the, arbitra uh, yeah, with the arbitrator the arbitrator need to find out uh, who was the who was breaking the pro trade protocol, who was uh, either trying to scam the other or just made a mistake or whatever. And depending on 
on the result, what after a few days or when he has a clear picture what was going on, he decides who uh, gets the payout of the trade. And the other trader who has done um, yeah, a rule violation will lose his uh, security deposit. That's a small amount. When you're doing a trade, he will lose that payment to the arbitrator as reward for the arbitrator for his work. It's Of course, it's a little bit difficult to find out the truth, but we are using a very interesting project, which is called uh, Page Signer or TLS Notary. And that's the first uh, solution where you can get a signed statement from a, from any HTTPS uh, web page. So he, the arbitrator can ask the, uh, the Bitcoin buyer, he should go to his banking web page on the history, on the transaction history, and should send him such a kind of um, a kind of signed screenshot. Uh, it's not a graphical screenshot. It's a plugin, a Firefox plugin, and you can sign any page. And then uh, the buyer has to send him this file, uh, this file, this data, and the arbitrator can verify that this page was not temp uh, tempered, that it was really exactly the page like he received it, received it from the bank. And that's basically the same like when the bank, when you're asking your bank for a digitally signed statement that you have done the tr transfer. But of course, the banks are, they didn't have discovered that cryptography exists and it would be a very e nice and easy feature what they could implement. But I think nearly no bank is doing that. Or then you have to wait maybe one month until you get it after the 20 calls. So we don't count on that, but we offer that as well, of course. But this uh, TLS notary provides basically the same functionality and that's very powerful. Because with that, the arbitrator get the tamper-proof evidence of both sides. This sounds like a perfect use case for smart contracts. Yeah, exactly. And I, I forgot a little bit to talk about the decentralized version. The way how the arbitration system is decentralized is uh, that anybody basically can become an arbitrator, but to avoid scams that an arbitrator make collusion with another trader and then try to scam the other, uh, the arbitrator need to uh, pay in a quite high security deposit that will be something like five Bitcoin or whatever. It will be related to the maximum trade amount, what he can do. And this uh, payment goes into a multisig, into a three or five multisig, where the key holders are the arbitrators with the highest uh, reputation. Those are the arbitrators, basically, who help in the bootstrapping phase. They're probably mostly people I either know personally or who contributed very early to the project and where I can assume they will not cheat the system because they really work for BitSquare. And any, of course, any arbitrator who will try to cheat is, uh, yeah, is, is uh, acting against the idea of BitSquare. So it's an enemy for BitSquare. So this, high, uh, this arbitrators with the highest reputation there is very little uh, chance that they will uh, also be scammers. It's maybe not 100% perfect, like also our traditional court system works in a similar way, that you have different layers and then you have the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court can be, can be corrupt as well and make wrong decisions. But at one point, you give up because it becomes impractical to go endless. And with this layered system, when something happening that... Um, that one trader, think, uh, yeah, the arbitrator decides that you are the loser, but you have not done anything wrong and you think that the arbitrator has made a bad decision, you can call this second layer, uh, this high, uh, yeah, this arbitrators with the highest reputation for checking the case and they will investigate the case again. And when they find out that the arbitrator has violated the rules, that he has maybe cheated or yeah, has not worked uh, along the defined rules, then this arbitrator uh, lose his high security deposit. He gets kicked out because he cannot work anymore for BitSquare. And uh, he risks that he lose a lot of money and the maximum what he can gain in the trade is yeah, the trade amount or probably the half of the trade amount because when he do a collusion, he probably share it with the other trader. And what he will lose would be a multiple of that. So the incentive to do a scam for an arbitrator is very low. This sounds like really valuable work in developing a uh, in developing a framework for resolving disputes in these decentralized and anonymous communities in in the future. It's uh, I mean, what's your vision for for the DAP and the DAO long term? 
I think and I hope that these models will get replicated and remixed and improved from many different people. Over time, I think we, we create a base for alternative, alternative business models and alternative uh, ways how people can earn money. Because at the moment, when you're, for instance, a developer, yeah, you can work on open source projects, but it's more or less like a hobby. Maybe you have saved enough money and you can live on that. Uh, or you need to make your day job and just do it on the weekend and a little bit, but it does not scale well. You cannot build a project like BitSquare with uh, contributors uh, yeah, who are working a few hours a week. I mean, uh, you really need people who are working a lot and better full-time, like, like just uh, 10 hours a week. And uh, it's, it's not possible for many people. When you have a family, you need to feed your family, you need your income. And today, there are not too many uh, possibilities where you can work on your stuff, what you really like to do, and you get your, your money also to survive and you get the reward for it. And this altruistic model, like many people are doing in the open source world, that they're just uh, yeah, contributing because they like the project or whatever, that's great, but it does not really scale to build bigger, bigger projects and uh, bigger stuff. And the competition with uh, the normal startup world where they get millions for making the next uh, block explorer, uh, <laughs> nobody needs at the end. Uh, nobody builds a decentralized exchange, uh, but everybody needs. But it was just missing the, the business models at the end. And I think with DAOs and such decentralized applications, we are creating the floor, the uh, basics for a new society where people can uh, engage really in that what they want to do, maybe in different projects and get become shareholders in different projects what they like. And maybe some projects does not generate much money, but maybe they generate other values like a great reputation or a great social value. And they can, uh, yeah, they, they make their living. And I think in a few years, and I think it's happening already in the altcoin world, there are quite a, a lot of projects who are exercising that, like new shares, for instance. Or of course, in the Ethereum space a lot. And I think it just needs time to develop more. And I think it can also go to a society where the money, as we know it now, becomes less important. And the value, as what the value what you're creating becomes more important. And when this value is inter-exchangeable uh, inter and represented as tokens, you can, yeah, you can exchange then these values when you're a surfer and work for a surf club and you are doing great work for them. But of course, the surf club is not earning money. But you get tokens there and these tokens might become interesting for other people who like to support this. And then they exchange these tokens to other tokens where you can buy your bread at the bakery or whatever. And I think that's a little bit my long-term vision, how society can evolve outside of this classical narrow capitalistic monetary system what we have at the moment and where we can solve uh, really hard problems of our world because I think um, many of the most difficult problems like uh, the ecological problems with climate change and so on, uh, everybody knows that uh, you need to do something but there are no business model. It does not, it's not uh, aligned to our, to our system in what we are living. And I think we need to shift in this direction otherwise we are killing our planet and ourselves. Thanks, Manfred, and you too, Carl. Go to bitsquare.io to learn more about the exchange and find the Ether Review at letstalkbitcoin.com, etherreview.info, and on Twitter at etherreview. Take it easy, guys.